0: So please take a nice seat (coughs) sensing through the body the space that you take up really giving yourself that space for the body, for your experience, for your life. This seated posture has a tremendous dignity. You can invite the quality of relaxation and care with your meditation as an expression of an intention for how to be in the world, how to relate to what comes up, present through the body and attending with the heart-mind. like to go through the meditations on the anatomical nature of the body and the elements, and then a quick visit to the remembrance of death. And then we'll enter into the bare awareness, bare attention of sensations. If you want to stick with some practice that you have already, you can take these words as sound or you're most welcome to follow the guided meditation practice so we'll start with the skin and placing your attention at the top of the head sensing the location in your own body in your own world of the skin on the top of your head and seeing if you can connect with it through image, sensation, or just a sense of spatial location, receptive to whatever arises in your practice. Moving the attention slowly down from the top of the head, registering the skin on the face and the entire head with all of its shape, its colors, hairs if any. You may like to wish well-being to the skin of your head, the skin of the neck, the shoulders and the arms, and hands. Same way through image, through sensation, through a sense of space that the skin encloses. (coughs) Through the incredibly sensitive transmission of temperature and touch. Sensing the skin of the hands. And the skin of the trunk of your own body. And should there be certain kind of judgmental reactions or suffering associated with the images of the skin or the sensations. See if it's possible to walk through it a little bit with your mind and just connect with the skin itself at this time, really allowing it to be as it is, front of the body, the back of the body, tenderness and attention to this human skin, living, keeping the body alive. The skin of the buttocks and genital area, nothing left out. The skin of the two legs. Seeing if you can allow the skin to just be its own living thing, down to the feet, bottoms and tops of the feet and the toes, sensing the whole skin. flexible kind of defines the inside and the outside the giving us much information about the world regulating the body vivid in its sensation and presence And from the bottom of the feet, tips of the toes, the flesh of the body. Sensing what's between the skin and bones. Letting your attention go deep inside the body. Moving attention up the leg area to the calves, the strong muscles there. Sensations from inside the body, in the skin, so body alive, the thighs. whether through image, a sense of heaviness, sensations, of whatever kind. The lower body, buttocks, genitals, the organs that are held in the hip area, like a basin Moving up through the internal organs of the belly, the muscles and fat, the hips, up through the torso, sensing everything that isn't skin and bone, organs, muscles. Penetrating attention up through the neck, shoulders, including the arms and hands, flesh, muscles, nerves, ligaments. Seeing how it's possible for the attention to move through the body and the head, the flesh of the head and the brain. You could invite the brain to relax. wishing well to the flesh of the body, just acknowledging it, including it in our practice. And then from the head down again, through the bones, bones that are living and transforming Seemingly solid, solid enough for our impermanent world. The bones in the neck, shoulders and arms. Sensing the bones in the place that they are through image or location, some kind of sensation. It may be that you kind of see something in your mind and you can't quite make it be all together. Just let your practice be as it is, accepting what comes. Sensing the ribs, the spine, and the trunk. the pelvis, the tailbone, the big joints of the thighs, and down the legs to the multiple bones of the feet. Sensing, of course, if you have some artificial joints or elements holding your skeleton together or any such thing incorporated into your own body, letting that be also part of your connection with this physical being of your own. So acknowledging the organic anatomical nature of the body. And since we're conveniently contemplating the skeleton, we'll use the skeleton as the basis for the earth element, the minerals in the bones, a sense of the solidity of the skeleton. It's one accessible way of sensing the earth element if, for you, the sensations of hardness and softness are clear. In a general manner that's fine you can use that but the solidity of bone from the feet up through the legs pelvis the spine and ribs Just allowing the mind to recognize earth element, the bones in the arms, the neck and head, the teeth. Might tap your teeth against each other not too hard, just to sense the hardness there if you'd like an accessible example. Then from the head down through the flesh of the body, we'll acknowledge the water element that's with which so much of the flesh and the organs are is imbued are imbued. Sensing the wateriness in the head through the saliva in the mouth, the watery jelly of the eyes, maybe some tears at the corners of the eyes, actual water through the throat. Perhaps sensing flesh and blood. And down through the arms, the soft flesh of the arms, like bags of water. How the flesh coheres with moisture. Noticing the location of the arms is said to be the expression of water element in our perception, anything that has to do with location. And through the trunk of the body, in your own way. The flesh of the legs and the feet I forgot to mention the bladder is also another place of noticing liquid might be for you and top to toe the body in its wateriness Just allowing whatever perception to arise. Now moving out toward the skin. We'll notice the element of temperature called fire. In the legs and feet, if you can sense a temperature that's either neutral, cool or warm, up the legs, just inviting a sense of recognizing coolness or warmth to your own degree, up the trunk and the arms and hands. There's a warm spot or a cool spot. Just notice that and perhaps say in your mind, fire element, temperature. This can be known. Not mine. Not me. Natural. And up through the neck and the head. Maybe a touch of coolness at the nostrils. There may be some warmth behind the eyelids. So, sensing the play of Warmth, coolness, through the entire body. Lastly, the element of air, which you can sense quite simply through the breath. Acknowledging air as it enters and leaves this body. You might, through sensation or imagination or subtle sense, notice that air pervades this entire body form. Sort of the gaseous nature in the body. Not separate from the atmosphere outside. Interconnected through the exchange at the nostrils and the mouth and the skin. Just as the water in the body flows in through the mouth and out through the lower orifices and through the eyes, etc., through the skin. Just as the temperatures of our body are related to the food, the combustion engine that this body is interacting with the atmosphere and climate just as the minerals of the bones and the rest of the body are part of the natural ecosystem, as the body participates in the environment and is alive and is known by awareness. And then through whatever means is accessible to you, acknowledging that this nature of this body is also to die. It's impossible that we can forbid it from doing so. And if you'd like to flash a very rapid image of this body as a corpse, Try and give it a favorable situation, a comfortable situation, if if you'd like to, nonetheless. Allowing any sensations or emotional feelings that you might have to be held in a caring attention, understanding the human side. view them as an expression of love. That we undertake the contemplation of death in order to find a deeper meaning in each day. A sense of value for this existence and the choices that we make and from here to enter the direct awareness of the breathing allowing all of the structured meditations to dissolve bringing forward this body's ability to know its own sensations connecting to them with a directed steady Caring attention as you've been doing these days, sitting on your seat of meditation, tranquil, alert, inclusive, and receptive. This set of exercises is offered to you to take home or to leave here. Either way, um, if you'd like to incorporate it in, into a daily practice, one one piece of it is fine, or all three, um, or the basic practice of attending to body sensations and breath. Those are um, all of them are good. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha lists, after he finishes giving all the various techniques that he suggests, including the basic mindfulness of there is a body through noticing all the movements through the day and stuff, he says that a practitioner does this, 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 or this, or all of them. So it's kind of a free array that we wanted to present so that you would, in part because it's somewhat effective or interesting to do them in order, or to do them in a structured way in a retreat, and that's an opportunity to just practice awareness and uh, sort of enhance it through having a structured attention practice. But also, just in case someone took an interest in it, a couple of announcements and reminders today that we're. Although it's the last day, and there's a shift in the practice in the afternoon. If you haven't looked at the board to see the uh, schedule, there's an all please attend at 4.15. Some talk about uh, the practice of giving and the manager's closing talk and some ride coordination. The mindful movement will still be offered um, at 2.45, the regular time. And there's a little bit of a shift of the times other than that, for today, please don't allow the thought that the retreat is over to cause you to stop practicing. It's actually continuing to deepen with every sitting and walking. This is a very rich time and you might feel that your practice is different from the way it was on the first day. So please stick with it. There's definitely you know, lots of interesting things in there for you to experience and to see. Emily is offering a group meeting uh, for a certain number of people, as many as is workable, but you can sign up on the board for that if you would like to um, have another meeting with a teacher. And is there anything else that I need to say? Oh, yeah. Can we have two practice leaders, one for the 10 a.m. and one for the 11.30 sitting? One, two... 10 and 11.30, just in your... So thank you to the practice leaders. Now it's a time for questions and answers, and we've received two interesting questions on the board, so with your permission, we'll respond to those. I will respond to those here. The first one is, what is the Buddhist view of suicide? Uh, Intense and powerful question. Maybe many of us have been touched by the um, self-killing of someone close. And if anyone here has had those thoughts or moments in your mind, you know how painful it can be. It's impossible to discuss the Buddhist view of suicide, the Buddhist view of suicide, without uh, discussing rebirth So one of the delusions in suicide is that it'll bring the pain to an end. It'll sort of annihilate the pain in the mind or the body. And just in a general sense, the pain that anyone who kills themselves leaves behind seems to not be, from the people I know who have been seriously contemplating killing themselves or who have done it, they don't take into account uh, what the community receives. They're really very much focused in on themselves. And if we take the broad view of identity, that it's we're not just ourselves. We're also like a participant in the lives and emotions of others. The compassion for one's children or one's family for what they have to deal with um, is something to just think of as a human being, like the buddhist view and the human view overlap in many ways and that's one like the impact like my friend Ramona said when she had kids she said not that i ever considered it too much but this definitely put suicide off the books for me you know it's a, one of the things that you bind yourself to is noticing the difficulties you can cause to others secondarily in the buddhist view um, there's the karmic view which is that um, the way you live your life will impact not sort of yourself, but some other being who will arise as themselves bearing the impact of your own ethical qualities or your loving kindness or your whatever it is. that um, The way that you live your life will affect someone in the future who will intimately experience themselves as intimately as you, you could say it's a form of genetic understanding, like the mystery of why people come into this world with so many different qualities, like that two people in this, from the same parents, could one could be like way more sensitive and the other one could be way more outgoing or something like that. In the Buddhist cosmology, that's due to their karma, where they didn't necessarily come from those parents in their previous existence. And in the genetic view, it's just because of... Random mutations, I guess, you know, and something carried through the family and something new with each person. But with the Buddhist view, the karma of having sort of hated oneself so much doesn't come to an end with the death of this being. So, killing oneself, it's like, why would you kill someone who's really dear to you? Why would you harm that being? So, if that's an issue for a person. They're to be encouraged not to do it because um, it's not as if they're going to bring their suffering to an end. They'll wake up in another body and they'll be bearing the the imprint of that pain. So there's an inheritance quality, similar to the way that suicide is like an illness in families. It doesn't seem to do much good for the world, I would say. Lastly, I will say, you know, in a spirit of absolute disclosure that in the Buddha's uh, time, there were a couple of enlightened beings who were in this uh, super painful stage of terminal illness, and they did end their lives. And the Buddha said, well, they're actually okay. They, the monks came to him one time, and they said, well, this the Arhant so-and-so has um, ended his own life, because he was having like this... Like, Sounded something like maybe stomach cancer or something that it was just nothing but pain, and the Buddha said, "Well, you see that cloud dissolving onto the horizon. That that one's consciousness has gone to the absolute, and there will be no more rebirth for that person." So, there's some possibility of doing it without aversion, without aggression, without delusion, and it's hard to say like how to make a you know a rational decision in this life. It's up to oneself. The pre the precepts are really about practicing as best one can, they're not, a, they're not commandments. So the Buddhist view doesn't necess- it sh- should inform one's view. Um, so I'll say that I'm not the one to tell anyone what to do. But the texts pretty much, if you know you're not enlightened, then um, be really careful with that one. <laughs> the second one is um, a note that was left about advice for meditating while in pain especially if pain is chronic this is um, true for many of us and more for some than others whose consciousness is kind of like deeply affected by ongoing pain in the body. So the instructions are, there's sort of a, you know, a tiered approach for what to do. First is um, to approach the sensation as a sensation, noticing the thoughts that one has and seeing if one can approach the sensation itself, that the whole like mental atmosphere of contending with Uh, deep pain on an ongoing basis also brings along a a lot of emotional and uh, cognitive sort of effects that are normal. So the invitation is to really work on the first and second arrow and notice the pain that the mind brings itself in relationship to pain. So to try to be very gentle and skillful and say, well, it's natural and normal to be upset if we have a lot of pain in our life. And this Could also be true of deep emotional pain or anguish that the sense of like oneself that one kind of builds up around that is very problematic and can be almost more of a problem than the original thing. So to work with that in a skillful way, to approach the pain itself as suffering, as pain, with a sense of compassion and inclusion as best we can, like to just touch upon it directly as best we can when the mind starts to feel, or the attention starts to feel, there's a word called krodha, which means the mind just gets kind of tight and stiff and sort of exhausted by trying to um, pay attention to the pain itself. Then the skillful instruction, this is also true of emotional pain, is to try to move the attention to somewhere where there can be some rest, where there can be some sense of ease, um, in the trauma work, it's called finding a resource, finding your resources, and it may be in our life that, um, including someone else's compassion, is really helpful for that. Like, it's not all just this, you know, mano a mano thing, <laughs> with big pains. Um, just finding a, you know, a place where there can be some joy or some refueling, in order to be able to go back and work with it. So it's a kind of going to the edge and coming back, like developing uh, the ability to amass a certain amount of equanimity when one is at the edge to discover like how can I be in balance when I'm not so much in balance, and then retreating to a place where there is more balance. So let's say if there's a strong pain in the body since really we wanna talk about skillful body awareness here, it's like you go right into the middle of the fire and you try to see where it's changing, that's actually really important to see the changing nature of pain um, in a direct way. So there could be like particles of fire or some kind of twisting thing or pulling or whatever it is. Try to name it and label it as sort of the qualities of the sensations that are there. Observe the dance of them, observe the heat or the fire, like sort of going into the fire and noticing the nature of the fire for as long as possible. And sometimes the aversion to the pain will disappear and it will actually become like super interesting. It won't, may not stop being unpleasant, but the way that we guard against it and immediately turn away from it is actually very taxing and painful in itself. So turning toward it is a generosity, like to love it or to send compassion to it. Sometimes sending loving kindness to the affected area is really helpful, because the mind does tend to sort of contract. Not paying attention to it so that it will go away is very important, like to come to it without necessarily that agenda, and observing what happens, like sometimes it'll stay the same, sometimes it'll go down, sometimes it'll become more intense. And then beating a skillful retreat when necessary and going to another object. And it may be that the physical pain, if it's intense, feels so absorbing that it's hard to pay attention to something else. Same with emotional pain. But it's really important to sort of poke through it. And it's an act of skill. It's not an act of cowardice to recognize that sometimes we just need somehow or other to take a break it could just be to stop meditating and um, sit there not with self-pity, but with a kind of compassion for the one who needs to undergo this, like sensing that this is really challenging, this is really hard. And that those kinds of phrases tend to bring a sense of self-compassion and can soften the overall situation in ways that just sort of go beyond. Like you don't understand how hardened you've become until you just take that type of break. You can place your hand on your heart or on your belly if you like, Um, or you can do some lying down meditation, something like that. Anything that will help feel sort of soothing. And I think those are kind of the best instructions we can give. Like it's not um, always an option to heal pain through awareness, but sometimes actually the type of awareness that we practice through the body can be very healing and balancing and it can prevent certain kinds of buildup from happening. Like if, as we do a daily practice, like the, just the simple invitation to the body and mind to relax is really quite incredible in a long-term way. So that's advocated at the meditation place where I was in Burma. They keep a notebook of sort of awareness cures, things that happen as people become aware and sort of loosen their, you know, tight process around things that many things can happen. And lastly, I'll say that the way that we are relating to each event in our life, that's what's ultimately really important, that maybe we can't change the pain, but we can be changed by it, sort of transformed by it. And the same thing happens with emotional difficulties, like the ability to be present with suffering in ourself ultimately becomes a tolerance for other beings when they're in pain too, If we, especially if we deliberately create that bridge of like being able to be with other beings when they're in their pain. Because a lot of times our resistance to the suffering of other beings is just that we don't want to feel that, or we don't want to go there in ourself, or some judgment intervenes. So if we're able to be quite aware and quite, you know, practicing that reopening again and gently gently addressing what feels difficult it's a, just a really incredible skill and resource for our life so i've almost used up all the question time with those two but they felt kind of big and important so we'd we'll take a couple here oh, go yeah she has a suicide tip comment <laughs> suicide hotline <laughs> <laughs> With that yeah.
1: preface, um, yeah, I think uh, two two aspects also from the Buddhist teaching that I think are helpful. One is the just the general understanding about dukkha. So that uh, this is the first noble truth. Like one of the first main things the Buddha talked about is that you know life is difficult. Microphones are difficult too. Um, you know life can be difficult and it, things don't don't always conform to the way that we would like them to be and there's pain in the body there's pain in the mind so if you are experiencing that it's not necessarily like what am i doing wrong you know why am i experiencing any pain uh it's like yeah this is kind of baked into the situation so it can be helpful to first of all just acknowledge that in some way you know but the second thing is something about like how to work with the mind and um you know, Lila was referring to this. So if such thoughts arise for yourself, it's helpful both not to ignore them, but also not to take them literally. You know, so the thought arises, like, that you want to end this life. So what does this even mean, this life? Like, what is this life? And really, I think it's good to recognize, oh, this is a cry for help, like this being is suffering in these current conditions. But it's also helpful to remember... Like, all conditions can change, all conditions will change. And sometimes we forget that we're in the midst of a certain situation of suffering that it's possible. Uh, But actually everything can change. Sometimes it's difficult to make those moves, but, uh, you know, one can leave relationships, one can leave jobs, one can get different haircuts, one can change one's name. You know, like, just basically everything can be possibly changed, so it's it's helpful, I think, to approach it from that, like not literally taking the thought seriously, like that means this animal being must be uh, wounded and killed, but actually like, okay, the conditions of this life must change. You know, this current way in which the conditions have arise, that's what I want to end, and then go about trying to do that. So that seems like a compassionate way to both not ignore that, but also to address that... Uh, in some way, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. And I think reaching out to give something to the world is a something like that, to not feel, like, alone. The practice of generosity or giving energy or helping another, like when you feel in despair, like, actually somehow doing something to make a difference and serve is a great prescription for that feeling, because we can. Okay, so a question or two. Um, yes. So you talked a times about having a set agenda to kind of change something, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain. Yeah. And I've noticed that it can be pretty sneaky and sometimes I'll have an agenda without really realizing it. Yeah. Right. I'm wondering if you have guidance around how to work with that. Yes, a question about um, not having a set agenda for how something should fulfill itself or, um, and how sneaky the agenda can be. Has anyone else noticed that, how sneaky the agenda can be? How to work with that. Well, it's a simple. Um, actually, I would say your observation is subtle and good, so it shows that your practice is deepening in a way, like you're, what you're seeing is, um, is of interest, I'm sure. Do you notice when the agenda has sneaked in that it brings a kind of tightness in the mind or something? Yeah. So placing attention on that tightness. The tightness, too, is impermanent and Any kind of mindfulness actually interrupts the continuity of this kind of unconsciously being taken over by stuff. So the fact that you've seen it is actually the beginning of liberating it. And that just seems to be the process. Like you might approach something thinking that you have no agenda and then all of a sudden you notice that you do. So in noticing it, there's a kind of sense of humor or sort of slight, uh, oh, okay, you know, like, you know, this animal parts of my brain really did want to feel better you know like I'm trying really hard the invitation is of course to bring our resources to bear and our intention and our best guess and our best effort and then allow the situation to unfold like when it in meditation it's like when a chicken is sitting on the eggs she doesn't have to make the eggs ripen she just has to sort of keep sitting and keeping it warm you know and the eggs will ripen on their own accord and in a sense this process of paying attention eventually unfolds and deepens on its own. So as you start to see these subtle things in mind and notice that in a certain subtle way they're suffering, like before we would take them for granted and say, well, it's fine to have an agenda, why not? And then see, it's actually about the suffering and the liberation of them. So it's just a quality of deep attention recommended to that. And sometimes it might be consciously letting go of insisting that things work out a certain way. Like we know we have agendas for people that we care about, like if they only would start meditating or something, you know, or, and how much good does that do to anyone? <laughs> Usually, You know, you could sort of wish that they would, but then you just have to give everybody their freedom. Um, thank you. One more? Yeah. Uh,
1: so, yeah. Uh... I'm from Toronto, so like many major centres, Toronto has uh, vibrant Buddhist communities. Yeah. So some of my Buddhist friends, Chinese Buddhists. I mean, and of course, I mean the uh, question about that, I mean, part of the belief about practice is sort of gather merits and then sort of tie into yeah. a fairly literal belief in afterlife. Yeah. Part of the cosmology. Uh, so my sort of relating to them mm-hmm. is trying to be respectful. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, mean I, I disagree with them. I agree with everything you said yesterday, I <laughs> disagree with them. But I can't help feeling a bit superior. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I mean that's all wrong. I mean, <laughs> I, mean, good, I mean, sorry, I mean, I, I'm respectful. I mean, I I guess that's pretty much what I can do.
0: Yeah, he's saying that he feels uh, superior to friends of his or uh, members of Buddhist communities who have literal-minded beliefs in merit and the afterlife and things like that, that he feels like his beliefs are more sophisticated. Um
1: <laughs> they're so wrong, kind of thing, yeah, I know
0: well, how do we do that? How do we hold a view and then also respect um in a discriminating way, like to not build ego on top of understanding like it may be that um it may be that nobody really knows how the cosmos functions on that level, like certainly in a in one's heart, it seems like there's a way of understanding that certain actions are beneficial and not. Like certain things bring suffering and certain things bring happiness. Like that's an understanding that these very practices are built to make more subtle and make more comprehensive and make it more real, true in oneself, that we understand what is helpful and what is not helpful. And is it helpful to feel superior? Like is that going to help the world or help you necessarily? Like. It might be, it might be that you could um, explore letting go of superiority, like what would happen if that happened, like the arrogance, secretly we're all somewhat arrogant in some way, like we're, put ourselves up and put ourselves down, like in the fully purified mind there's no better, worse or equal, so maybe taking that as, um, as a type of guide for yourself that you could look at the human being with their organs and their spleen and everything and start to see beyond the view of self and other in that sense. And it's okay to hold your own views and to say that one differs. But um, creating more otherness is not necessarily helpful. But if someone holds a view that ends up... Like it seems like I don't know what kind of merit these people are creating. If they're founding orphanages and you're just sitting at home rejoicing in your superiority, maybe they're... (laughs) Maybe they're <laughs> better, <you know? laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Cultivating merit is actually a beautiful path, as when it doesn't, when it isn't literal, when it's opening the heart and really like looking at the impact of our actions, you know, and looking at how do we want. Th- Can we leave this world a better place? And being able to come from a real place with that, not an obligation, and where there's a sense of connection and rejoicing in that, you know, rejoicing in one's good deeds and the good things that one has done in life. Like, that's a beautiful thing. One's really invited to do good things and then rejoice and be happy about it. Like, that's like such a fantastic practice. But no, it doesn't have to be like the Burmese junta used to keep itself on top. They believed by putting jewels on top of um, pagodas, like that would keep them in power. And you know, while they were being oppressive, also. So it's a real tergiversation of Buddhist cosmology to say like, if I do this, then I'll still be able to oppress a whole bunch of people. You know, it's like no. Anyway, that's this is a, could be a long discussion, but everyone here is a smart person, so um, thank you for bringing it up.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and
0: Dharma seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.